Welcome to episode 115 of the Opinion Overload podcast. This is going to be part two of the series The Prince, and we're going to be talking about some of the middle parts of the book, specifically at pages 35 through 60. That's what I got to this week. And there's quite a few topics here. There's six, and I'll be going through them in order. So what we're going to start off with is concerning a principality gained by wickedness. Now, you can kind of get where he's going to go here. There's examples of rulers who gained their their power by cruelty, you know, torture, extortion, things like that, that realistically, their claim to the throne isn't as strong as someone who gained power another way. And there's a thing I, ch- I checked out here on page 38. Owing to their continued and repeated wrongs for injuries ought to be done all at one time so that being tasted less, they offend less. Benefits ought to be given little by little so that the flavor of them may last longer. What he's saying here is when someone's ruling a principality by wickedness, If you're going to do something against the people, you should probably do it all at once. That way, over time, it'll fade from their memories after you give them small benefits, not, you know, like little secessions to what they want that still help you maintain power. He argues that this isn't the best way to run a principality because essentially at some point in time, the people are going to rebel and you're going to be uh, ousted or killed. Anything that can happen to a, a prince. On top of that, it talks about the way that these princes rule not being truly effective because they're really ruling with fear or with um, dictation, really. It, it's a dictatorship. That's what it is. Any Anybody who is ruling against the people's wishes and is doing so in a way that hurts the people of his own country, who he should be bound to protect, is a dictator. There's no real ways around that. And I think about this this chapter, because some of these chapters in this book are really short. Like there's one that's going to come up later that's uh, titled Concerning Ecclesiastical Principalities. It's like two pages. But this chapter is relatively short. It was about five or six pages. And you have to consider the con- the context of what he was doing. This book was written, um, I don't remember the date. I think it was in like 15, it was around 1530. Let's see. Let's look it up. Uh, the Prince original publish original um, release hmm uh, no that's not not the musician okay wrong but what he was doing is he was trying to get into a position of um, power himself by advising if I recall correctly it was Fuck, what family was it? It wasn't the Tudors. 
was it the Medici family? No, I don't think it was them either. But essentially what he was trying to do was, I think it might have been the Borgias. Might have been them. But what he was doing was getting into a position of power where he could advise the king. So he wrote this book as essentially a letter saying, you know, you can do these things. And these are all the different examples of how a a king can rule, a prince, he calls it. This is kind of what I think is the best one. He hints at really um, a prince that's keeping his power centralized. He definitely hints at a prince that keeps all his military forces um, native to his country, things like that. So you'll see as I go over, you know, as I go through this, uh, he talks about the next chapter concerning a civil principality. What that is, is a person who comes from a low station, say a regular public servant or a person, and is then elected to be the prince by their by their peers. Well, he said this can go one of two ways. You're either elected by the people, and as such, the people will protect you to a degree. They can't really protect you from the nobles, who are the other faction that can put you in power, but they do because they are the majority. They can definitely put the pressure on nobles by doing things like I don't know, fighting a war in your name or protesting, stuff like that. Whereas the nobles, a much smaller faction, but a much more powerful faction, and they have the ability to put you into power basically on their own. And on top of that, you would rather be sided with them, he says. I disagree, but, you know, he's this is what he says. You would rather be sided with the nobles because their ability to protect you and the benefits you would get from being allied to them mean a lot more than being allied to the people. So really what he's going after here is you want to be allied to the nobles because if you're not, you have to consider them trying to take your position. And if you're allied to them, you can have them closer to you and you can be on the lookout to make sure that None of them are really plotting to assassinate you or anything like that. That's what I gleaned from it. There's other benefits to it, like, you know, being able to make alliances and have uh, extra resources, more ability to, you know, rule your empire, rule your principality flexibly. It's, it seems to me that the civil principality or the principality by hereditary or hereditary principality is the way to go. It's what he's seeming to say. Um, I do think, though, that you would much rather have the people on your side than the nobility, because in the case that you had, I don't know, a war, let's say a civil war, if the people are united behind you, then there's much less division going on if they're if you're with the nobles and the nobles all have their own um, sway over the people, right? Like, I think this goes back to what he was talking about, barons and centralized power. If your nobles are who you're allied to, and the people know you're their prince, but they're not totally loyal to you, 
Well, they're probably going to go with someone who is closer to them, say, you know, the noble of their region. And they're going to they're going to go side with them in the case of a civil war, because that's the person they know. Where if you as the prince have taken time to tour the country and you've taken time to do infrastructure projects and things, the people will eventually become loyal to you because you're the person who's helping them out of situations and helping them with things that they're the noble in their region wasn't. So hold on, I have to pause here. So yeah, I had to deal with something real quick. I'm going to move on to uh, measuring strength. Really, this boils down to two simple things. The reputation of the prince and the fortifications of his, his holdings. If someone isn't immediately repugnant, like the people have no reason to rise up against him, they probably won't. And if his capital city is well fortified and protected, then it's going to be hard to take him out of power. On top of that, if his cities in general are well fortified and protected, he made an example of Germany, um, all of their cities had arms and food for one year, well, you're going to have a really hard time fighting that war. That's pretty much all he means by measuring strength, is how well, how strong is their military, and how well did the people receive their prince. Okay, I took a break for a minute because I need to do some stuff, but I'm back. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about concerning ecclesiastical principalities. In my opinion, these are the most powerful because they don't directly rule over everyone or they don't directly rule over anything, but they do influence everything. On top of that, a prince of an ecclesiastical principality doesn't have to be beholden to anybody because he's essentially a divine, uh, divinely instituted monarch. Kinda. Not the best terminology for it, but he's divinely appointed. That's better. Because of that, most people aren't going to rise up against that. I mean, people did. Look at Catholicism, Protestantism, Lutheranism, Calvinism, all that shit. But... What we are looking at here is this. An ecclesiastical principality is incredibly important to know the intricacies of because it can absolutely dominate you. It doesn't have to invade you with a military. It can invade you with an ideology. It can come in and say, yo, this is what's happening. Uh, we're converting people to Christianity or whatever. And all the people are going to believe what we say and no longer what you say. So, this is the most insidious, in my opinion, principality. Because they can do basically whatever. They're not beholden to anybody. They don't have to have conquered uh, territories to hold them. They can pass off any of their misgivings as it's the will of God. Right? So an ecclesiastical principality is incredibly dangerous. Now, he also talks about the types of soldiers, and there's a few types. There's a volunteer soldier native from your country. There's a conscripted soldier from your country. There's auxiliaries, which are people you conquered, but you let them into your military. There's mercenaries, people you hired to fight for you. And then there's just regular people who might pick up arms, even though they don't want to, if their home is being invaded. 
Machiavelli says that you want soldiers from your country who are voluntary. That's going to be the best defense force that you can put up ever because they're innately invested in defending their homeland and they'll fight to the death for it. The conscripts, while they're willing to fight for their country, they might not be as willing as volunteer soldiers. And, you know, really, you want to limit yourself to people from your country. Auxiliaries can work, but really, strategically, they're not going to be the best for you, and they might be better as troops to put into the meat grinder of war. And mercenaries, he talks mad shit about mercenaries, because really, they show up for the money. They delude themselves into thinking that, you know, they're valorous and they have all this, they're so good at war. And then when the times get tough, they, they desert or they betray you or they won't serve you to the best of their abilities, right? Which is why he hates them. Because this happened a lot in Europe at that time. People were hiring mercenaries as their armies and they were getting fucked by people who'd actually raised regular armies. Not hired mercenaries, but people who lived in the country and wanted to go fight. And on top of that, this caused so much strife in Europe that uh, whole emp- like whole kingdoms were built off of mercenaries fleeing. He makes the point. Um, I forget. Let's see, page forty. Mm. Where is it? I can't find it, but one of the kings, I believe it was Charles of France, if I'm recalling it correctly, he absolutely dominated Western Europe because he had his own standing armies. So these are all my points for today, and I'm going to close this podcast up. This is kind of short, but uh, really I didn't have too much to go into about this stuff because it was pretty straightforward in the first place. So I'll see you guys next Tuesday with whatever I'm going to talk about and then next Friday with uh, the final part of the prints. All right. See you guys later. Peace out.